Let's bow our heads for just a moment of silent prayer. Amen. My youngest son is in his 40s now. This story happened when he was in the first grade. We were in a little town called Galesburg, Illinois, and we were in the process of building a new church. It was Wednesday evening, and we were just getting ready to go to a prayer meeting. And uh, the old church was clear across town, but the new church that we weren't occupying yet was only two blocks from our house. And so as the kids were getting ready to go to prayer meeting, I says, I'm just going to run over and check and make sure that the building is all closed up because it was cold and it was snowing. So I ran over and checked and everything was fine. And I stopped by the church school that was right there by the new church. And I could see that the church school children had taken advantage of the snow and built themselves a little igloo. And uh, I'd also noticed that neighborhood kids after school's over had come down and broken it down. And that made me a little bit upset. Pardon me, I've got to take this thing out. I can't stand it. There we go. I don't know if it sounds better to you, but I hate hearing myself. Okay. My wife is trying to tell me something. And it, is it still squeaking? All right. Now that's better. Anyway, I was upset. I thought that's ornery of those kids to tear down my kids' snow cave. So I went home, and we got in the car, and we headed across town to the old church for prayer meeting. They said, Daddy, did you see our snow cave that we built? And I told them that I did, and I told them what the neighborhood kids had done, and they were really upset. And they were saying, well, next time we build a snow cave, we're going to hide someplace, and when those kids come over and get inside, start tearing down, we're going to jump on top of them. And I thought, yeah, that's... And my wife in the few minutes that it took us to get over to permitting, told them a story that I was ashamed that I didn't even know it was in the Bible. Shame on me. How many agree with that? It was a story in the Bible, and here this pastor had been a pastor for about 11 years, didn't even know it was there. So I'm going to tell you where it is so that you never have that happen. It's found in Genesis 26, and this is the story that my wife told the kids. It was about Isaac, and Isaac had gone back to the place where his father had dug wells. And when he got there, he discovered that the local inhabitants had used the wells for a garbage pit. They'd filled it up, put dirt back in it. And so the Bible says that Isaac got busy and he cleaned them out until the water was beginning. How many knew that story? How many knew that story ahead of time? How many didn't know it? How many like me didn't know it? All right, well, I'm not the only ignorant one. That doesn't mean I'm sorry. Anyway, he cleaned it out. And as soon as he got the wells cleaned out and the water started running, the same people who put the stuff in came along and says, that's our water. Now, had Isaac been anything like Pastor Stauffer, I would have looked him over, and if they were littler than me, I'd say, well, take it if you think you can get it. And if they were bigger than me, I would walk away, and I would wait until it got dark and they were gone, and I'd come and put the stuff back in and says, if, if you want it, you clean it out. But the Bible says that that is not what Isaac did. He was kind and polite. And I have had some people say, well, Isaac was acting like a wimp. And he went away. And this time he dug another well. And as soon as they got the water going, the Bible says that the same people came along and said, the water's ours. 
And again, the Bible says that Isaac was kind and friendly, and this time he moved far enough away that when they, they didn't come and bother him, and finally he named the place a certain name, and uh, says there's room for us, and they didn't bother him. And if you're looking in Genesis chapter 26, I want you to go down to verse 24. Now I'm going to start back in verse 22. Verse 21 says, And they digged another well, and strove for that also, and he called the name of Sitna, called the well of anger. Verse 22. He removed from there and digged another well, and for that they strove not, and he called the name And I won't try to pronounce it, but he says, God has made room for us. And then in verse 24, notice what it says. And the Lord appeared unto him when? Are you looking? The same night, after he'd moved away, after he'd done this, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I'm the God of Abraham, thy father, fear not, for I am with thee, will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. What do you think God's attitude was toward Isaac because he treated those people the way he treated them? He says, he came to him, he says, I'm going to bless you. And in verse 26, it says, Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar and his two friends, and I won't pronounce their names. One of them was the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Why do you come to me, seeing that you hate me? You have sent me away from you. Verse 28, I love verse 28. And they said, we saw certainly that the Lord was what? With thee. How did they know that God was with Isaac? Um, It was right away. How did they know? And the only thing that I can see here is, is that the way that Isaac treated them, and they says, we recognize God was there. Now, I've made up a little parable. I don't know if it happened this way or not. But you know that in the New Testament, In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uses the term, says, if a man compel thee to carry his burden a mile, carry it how far? Now, this was was based on the fact that the Romans wanted the nations that they had captured to know who was the boss there. So as the Roman soldiers were going through the country, if they saw a native of that land, in this case it was Israel, a Jew, if they saw a Jew, they would stop them from working, and they'd say, you carry my backpack. And knowing what human nature is and knowing how the Jews felt about being invaded by the Romans, you can see the the Jew picking up the backpack, mad as all get out, stomping off down the road. And for a while, they'd make him carry it two, three, four miles. But it was starting to interfere with the commerce because the people were not able to keep at their jobs and so they didn't have as much taxes to pay the government. And so the Roman Senate decided we need to make law. We want the Jews to know that... We are in charge, and we're going to make them carry the pack. But they told the soldiers, you can only make them carry the pack for one mile. And then they go back to their work so they can make money, so they can pay taxes. And, of course, the Jews found out about this, and they knew to a centimeter how far a mile was from their field. And you can see them picking up the pack and stomping up down the road, muttering to themselves what we're going to do when the Messiah comes. And they would get to the end of that mile to the very end. They'd take the backpack throw it on the ground and stomp bath, muttering under the breath. How many can see this? Human nature. Well, the parable that I've made up is a young soldier is backpacking through the country, and he comes to a little town called Nazareth, and he's looking around for someone to carry his pack. And he stops at a carpenter's shop, and he sees the young carpenter there, and he swears at him. He says, get out here and carry my pack. 
And unlike most of the other Jews that he'd seen, the carpenter seems kind of pleased at the idea of getting out of the stuffy carpenter shop for a while. So he comes out there and politely says, be glad to. And he picks up the soldier's backpack and puts it on his back. And instead of stomping off down the road, he kind of walks along with the soldier and uh, starts asking him, you know, where you're from and how long have you been in your country? And uh, do you have family? Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you have, well, they don't have pictures in those days. But he just, how many can see him walking down the road and just making conversation? And they get to the end of the mile, and the Roman soldiers knows that they've already gone farther than a mile. So he says, you don't have to carry it any farther. And the carpenter says, that's all right. I enjoy your company. He says, I need the exercise anyway. I'll carry it farther. So he carries it another mile. When they get to the end of the mile, he uh, apologizes to the soldier. He says, I wish I had stopped. My mom's a good cook. I would have brought you something to eat. However, he says, see that little trail right here? He says, you go down that trail about a quarter mile. There's a nice spring down there. Well, all the locals know where it is, but you probably don't. You can fill your canteen down there and get a nice drink. And uh, he carefully takes the soldier's backpack off. He doesn't throw it on the ground. He helps the soldier put it on his back. He says, you come this way again, stop in. I'll have my mom fix you lunch. And then the carpenter goes back to his carpenter shop, and the soldier goes on down and gets a drink, and he goes on his way thinking, what kind of, who is that? How many know I'm making this up? I would like to, maybe when I get to heaven, anyway, years go by, and the soldier becomes promoted, he becomes a centurion, and one day he is in the capital city of that country, and he is assigned to a crucifixion. And there are three people to be crucified that day, and the two are acting like contemned people act, but he is amazed by the third one. And he isn't swearing, he isn't crying out for mercy. In fact, as they beat him, the only thing he hears this fellow say is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there's something vaguely familiar about this fellow. And the centurion keeps wondering, who is this? I've seen him before, and he can't figure it out. And finally, they nail him to the cross, and all they hear the young man say is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And just as he dies and he cries out, Into thy hands I commit my spirit, all of a sudden the soldier recognizes that's the carpenter. And he says, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, you know I made that story up, at least part of it. But I cannot help but think, I like to think that the reason that soldier recognized that that was the Son of God was not because of the earthquake or because of the lightning, but because of the attitude that Jesus had toward the people who were tormenting him. Amen? Now, I do not know if what the rest of the story is true or not, but you know that a number of years later, there was a centurion. We know it was a centurion at the cross. There was a centurion. His name was Cornelius. And there'd been something bothering him for a long time, and he kept praying, God, help me to know you. And he had a dream, sent to Caesarea. What was the name of the town? Anyway, there's a man by the name of Peter. He's with a tanner named Simon. Send for him, he will tell you. And Peter goes out and preaches the gospel to this soldier and his family, and they're all baptized. Now, I don't know that Cornelius was the man at the cross, but I like to think so. Don't you? And you see, the greatest opportunity that we have to witness is when somebody is treating us badly and rather than acting the way that the normal human being acts when you're being treated badly, 
is to treat those people the way that Jesus treated the people who were crucifying him. How many like a practical joke? No, I didn't see any hands. Oh, I see one. Let me tell you my favorite kind of practical joke. It's the one that backfires on the person who pulls it. Now, how many like that kind of practical joke? I remember when I was in the academy, we had a lot of water fights. Uh, we didn't just use squirt guns or cups. We used waste baskets. And uh, I remember one of the ones that we would pull. We would fill a waste basket half full of water, and we'd open some guy's door, and we'd put the waste basket on top of the door and bounce it up there so when he came through. And I remember this one kid, he was wanting to get somebody, and he filled a waste basket and uh, went to class, and nobody came through there. And he came back and forgot all about it, went to see this guy, and the thing came down. How many think that's hilarious? You can pull this kind of thing on Satan because Satan plans things for Christians. How many know that? Satan plans things for you. And he will get in somebody's heart, and the heart that he gets into might even be a follower of Jesus. How many know that once in a while followers of Jesus can have a bad day and Satan gets in their heart, and he will be working on this Christian so that he gets this Christian to do something mean to this Christian? How many think Satan does that? This church member do something mean to that church member. And what he's hoping is that the other church member who's been treated mean will react back in the same way. How many ever heard that happen? And we call them church fights. How many have ever heard of a church fight? Praise the Lord. I see somebody shake their head. How many know that that happened even with the disciples? You know, we talk about New Testament Christianity. We want to get back to New New Testament Christianity. I think we need to do better than that. Because if you follow the life of the disciples in the three and a half years that they were following Jesus, you'll discover that there was conflict among the disciples. How many were aware of that? How many are disappointed that I am telling you that story? But the Bible says that they would get into conflicts with each other. Who's going to be the highest? When Jesus sets up his kingdom, who's going to be the highest? And the mother of James and John, two of the outstanding disciples, came to him and says, Master, when you set up your kingdom, can one of my sons sit on this side, and the other side sit on that side? And the other ten found about it, and they were angry. How many know I'm telling the truth? Even at the Last Supper, there was this conflict going on. How many think Jesus liked it? He didn't like it. But he still loved the disciples. Amen? Do you understand why I said we need to, get, we need to do better than New Testament Christianity? Because you, you go into the book of uh, Corinth, and you'll find there was conflicts in the church at Corinth, and yet Paul calls them saints. Does it make you be a little bit patient with each other to realize that God is giving us a chance to grow? Amen? But now back to this practical joke. Satan plans something. And so he gets this person to do something or say something mean to this person. And what Satan hopes is they start fighting. But this person is having a close date with Jesus Christ that day. And rather than react in the way Satan hoped that they react, they treat them nice. Does the Bible say that? Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Romans chapter 12. Now you know this text. Romans Chapter 12, I'm in chapter 9, so you better hurry. Here it is, starting verse verse 17, Romans 12, 17. Are you there yet? Start reading. 
recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with how many people? Everybody. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, saith Lord. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him a drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil how? With good. I used to be in charge of the teen tent at camp meeting years ago when I was young enough to be able to do that kind of thing. And uh, in the morning we'd have a meeting, the af- at night we'd have a meeting, but in the afternoon we would have some kind of sports activity or something. And I remember a few years at camp meeting, we had a really, really warm camp meeting. It was just too hot to go out in the ball field and play ball. And so I thought, well, we'll have a water fight. That will cool us off. And so I would go across the road, if you know the camp, because I didn't want the kids water fighting whether people coming by, because I thought things might get out of hand here. So we would go over in the woods across the road, and one place over there, if you know the camp very well, there's a water spigot there. And I took a couple of big garbage cans, and we'd put a hose, and we'd fill the garbage cans with water. And then I took a rope and made a, a zone around the uh, cans, and I gave everybody a plastic pan, a bowl. And I had a whole bunch of them. And I'd say, as long as you're inside the rope, you can't have water fights. You can come in and get water. How many can see the reason I did that? They'd get water, and then they had to get outside the rope. And once they were outside the rope, they could throw water, but they also could become a target. And one of the little tricks that I learned is I would take my bowl, and I wouldn't put water in it, and I would stand outside the rope. And, of course, they'd think, let's get Pastor Stoffer, And they would fill their water, and they'd come running out there. And I learned a little trick. When they'd throw their water, I could catch it on the bottom of my bowl, and it'd come right around and right back in their face. How many think I love that? <laughs> and you see, this is why God may even allow you to be treated badly. How many, when you get treated badly, you think, that's not God? Now, let's face it. It is Satan, isn't it? But how many know that sometimes Satan allows things to happen to you? And what I'm thinking is, is Satan is working on somebody that he wants to get me away from Jesus. And so Satan works on this person, and then they come and they do this to me. But I'm staying close to God. And rather than reacting the way that Satan is hoping I react, I do what the Bible says. I treat them good instead of bad. And it could be. That what happens is the person that Satan was using to get me away from God, rather than getting me away from God, I get that person close to God. How many think Satan tears his hair out? And there's a phrase that I like, bring it on. Now, we really don't want to do that. And yet, think about it. If Satan is controlling someone and God wants to get that person on God's side, maybe God will allow that person to do you dirt so that you can turn around and do them good. Does that make sense? Now, the title of the sermon is Satan's Most Successful Temptation. I would try to disguise this story, but I'm not going to. How many have heard the story of what went on up in heaven before sin came? How many know what caused sin? Now, I'm going to put it in, we uh, had a board meeting a few weeks ago and decided it was time for us to start nominating committee business. You know, I've been a pastor for a number of years, and the one thing that is a pastor's job that I've always dreaded the most was nominating committee. 
And a couple years ago, when uh, it was time for me to retire, I told my church members, I says, when I retire, I will still preach. I'll, still, I'll preach for free. But I says, if you want me to sit on the nominating committee, you're going to have to put me back on salary. So Elder Edge has done that. So I, and It was funny because about a year ago, a little, little less than a year ago, uh, I thought I had retired. I'd gone out and held some meetings, and then I was back in Texas. And, and uh, anyway, I was sitting in the church that I had pastored, and there's a new pastor there who's been a friend of mine. And uh, they were just starting nominating committee business. And I turned over to my wife. They were just electing the committee that would nominate the nominating committee. And I leaned over to my wife, and I says, Boy, I'm glad I don't have to do this again. And then I got a call to go to North Dakota, and they did nominating committee in the summertime. And I got right in the middle of it. And then I got done with that in October, and I got the call to come here, and I came to first board meeting and says, we're going to do nominating committee. <laughs> but there was a nominating committee in heaven. How many are aware of that? And after the nominating committee was over, the, the, mo- the, the, the highest angel in heaven, the leading angel in heaven, the archangel in heaven, didn't like what the nominating committee had done. And he did not get the position that he wanted. And he made the devil out of himself. And I would say that the most successful temptation of Satan is to come to, I mean, think about it. Why shouldn't Satan use that temptation on church members? It worked on him and he was perfect, right? And so you can be sure of it. The one temptation that Satan uses on the best possible people is the one that makes them think, I am not being treated the way that I deserve. Now, you hear me talking about this because you ask me how I am, and I say, nobody treats me the way I deserve. Praise the Lord. Because if I were to get treated the way I deserve, I would be what? I'd be crucified. And we are living in a society that I'll be honest with you. I'm getting a little bit... Oh, I hate to say it this way, but I'm getting sick and tired of the word fair. I'm not interested in fair. I'm interested in mercy. Amen? Because if we get treated fair, we're all going to be, we're all going to be lost. I read something Mark Twain said one time. He, he says, I hear that preachers say that, righteous, that salvation is by grace. He says, by, yeah, by grace. It's a good thing because the salvation were by works. Your dog would be saved and you would be lost. Amen? Now, the text that was read this morning, I want you to go there. It's found in the book of Peter, 1 Peter. And if you read through the whole book of 1 Peter, the thing that you will discover that 1 Peter is talking about is that Peter was writing to the Christians, to the believers, wanting, knowing that they were soon to pass through persecution because in almost every chapter of 1 Peter, he's talking about people being treated badly. Are you with me? And did it happen? Were Christians treated badly? And Peter was warning them, you, this is going to happen. All of those who, who want to live righteously are going to suffer persecution. Now, when you get into chapter 2, as you go down from verse 1 down to about verse 8, it's talking about how that they had been called, they're lively stones, you're part of the temple, and by the time you get down to verse 9, it says... But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Is this talking about people who are already God's people? Are they already Christians? How many say amen to that? There, it says they're a peculiar people. Titus talks about that. They're a royal priesthood. They're a holy nation. They're the chosen generation. Now, how many think if you are among this class in verse 9 that you are going to be the target of Satan's temptations? Am I right? And when it gets in verse 10, it says, you weren't his people, but now you are the people of God. You've obtained his mercy. And when you get to verse 11, notice what it says. Dearly who? Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I'm begging you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. How do you know? Are you, can you be positive? Satan's going to make war against your soul if you're one of these people. Now, when we read this text, uh, when it says fleshly lust, we think, well, we know what that's talking about. It's talking about immorality. But when you read the context and you read the rest of the chapter and get into chapter 3, you'll discover it is not talking about that because that is a blatant sin that, you know, if you're really close to God, are you with me? But it's talking about a sneaky sin, something that when you are doing it, you may not even think you're doing it. In fact, you think you have every right in the world to do it. And as you go down here, verse 12, having your conversation, which is an old English word that means your lifestyle, your lifestyle, honest among the Gentiles, that they're speaking evil against you. They say you're evil's doers, but by your good works, they'll be, behold and glorify God in the day of visitation. And then when you get to verse 13, the very first word in the King James is what? And it's a word that human beings do not like. What's the first word there? Submit. Did I use the right inflection of my voice to say submit? Submit. All right. And as you read there, it's talking about something that we don't like to do. And that is, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king is supreme, or unto governors, or unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For it is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the, the ignorance of foolish men. As free, not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God, honor how many people? How many? Honor them all. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Uh, let's see. Next month is March and the next month is April. And every time April comes around, I want to get on a boat and throw tea into the water. And I get upset about the government. But Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and render to God the things that are God's. And we know prophecy, and we know what's going to happen. Amen? And we know that Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with whatever you have. For God has said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, so that we can boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid of what man shall do to me, even the government. Amen? And one of the things that I notice about the life of Jesus, the government under which he lived was corrupt, wasn't it? But Jesus was not going around trying to change the government. He was going around trying to change people's hearts so that no matter what the government did to them, it wouldn't bother them. Are you with me? And so when it comes next November, I will probably, if I'm back in Texas, go vote. Uh, but whichever ways it goes is not going to really affect me all that much for eternity. Amen? And if bad things happen to me, whether it be the government or 
Somebody else, a neighbor or a church member, if bad things happen to me, I'm going to say, that gives me an opportunity to witness. Amen? And when bad things happen to you, you look in the Bible and say, I have an opportunity to be nice to the people who have been bad to me, and maybe I can witness for Jesus this way. And so, though I think we are counseled that we should do what we can to make the government better, we need to recognize that ultimately it's not going to happen. But that we need to win people from, from Satan's side to Jesus' side by whatever we do. Now, I've got a lot more to say on this subject. I've got, got a whole sermon on the Christian's relationship with the government, but that's not my theme today. I want to get a little farther. How many of you have bosses? Even bosses have bosses. Well, servants, employees, or in the case in the New Testament, it's probably even slaves. Verse 18, there's that word again. Servants do what? Be, don't like that word, be subject to your own masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the forward. Modern translation, maybe your boss is a jerk. All right? Verse 19, this is a strange text. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief suffering how? Now what did it start out by saying? If you are suffering, endure grief suffering wrongfully, what does the Bible say that that is? What term does it use? Thankworthy. This is something that you can thank God for. If you're doing what's right and you're punished for doing what's right, the Bible says this is a good thing. How many think the Bible's nuts? It's surely not human, is it? Verse 20. For what glory is it? If when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently. Now that's, you know, that's kind of the worldly standard. I've done wrong. I'm being punished. I have it coming. I'll take my punishment like a man. And we look on that with admiration, don't we? Here's a guy who knows he's done wrong and he's taking his punishment like a man. We think, that's good, that's good. Bible says... That's nothing. If you've done wrong and you're punished, you ought to take it patiently. For what glory is it? If when you be buffered for your faults, you take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it and take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Is the Bible different than the world? Because when the world treats you bad, the Bible says that you turn around and you treat them good and maybe, just maybe, put a smile on your face you might win a soul just because of the fact that when you're treated bad, you turn around and treat them good. You have a greatest opportunity to witness when things are going bad. When things are going good, you know, you can be nice. You don't even have to be a Christian when things are going good. But when things are going bad and people are treating you bad and you turn around and you treat them good, you might steal them right out of Satan's kingdom. Amen? Verse 21. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, and when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. In other words, he just put it in God's hands and says, I'm going to let God take care of this. I'm not going to. Now, this is 20, 30 years ago. I forget how long it was. 1970, 80. Anyway, it doesn't make any difference what happened. But uh, 
we, I was pastoring a church that was in the vicinity of one of our academies, and my wife was the assistant cook at the academy, and she became friends with some of the other ladies who worked in the kitchen, and one of the ladies' husband was the treasurer of the academy. And uh, when he had accepted the job, they told him who his secretary was going to be. It was someone who was already in position there, so he did not choose his secretary. Anyway, he called me on the phone one day. He says, I need to talk to you. Would you come down? So I went down to the academy. I only lived 10 miles away and went into his office, and he told me that he was being fired. And uh, the secretary had made a big mistake and lost the academy a lot of money. And since he was the treasurer, he was being fired. And he was feeling bad, and it wasn't fair. And what he explained to me, the situation, it wasn't fair. And he says, I have received counsel that I should resist this. I should get a lawyer and fight this. He says, what do you think? And I says, well, do you want to know what Bob Stoffer thinks, or do you want to know what the Bible says? He says, well, aren't they the same? I say, well, they should be. Sometimes, unfortunately, they're not. And he says, well, what does Bob Stauffer think? I says, this is not right. You should get a lawyer and fight him. He says, what does the Bible say? So I had already found this text by then. And so we read what I just read to you about it being thankworthy. If you haven't done anything wrong and you're punished and you're not, you don't deserve it. And bless his heart, he decided that he would do what the Bible said. And so he lost his job. Not only did he lose his job, but he also lost his house because he was living in, in school housing. And he had a rough time for several months. A friend said, you can put your furniture in my basement. And six months later, I got a letter from him. And he said, it's been a rough six months, but he says, I'm glad you showed me that text in Peter. Because he says, though I liked my job at the academy, he says, always in the back of my mind, I wanted to live in Vermont and I wanted to be a book and Bible house manager. He says, guess what? I'm living in Vermont, and I'm the manager of the book and Bible house there. And I have discovered, like with Joseph, how many know the story of Joseph? You know, the thing that makes me smile about that story is when the brothers finally come down to Egypt to get food, and they finally find out that this guy who is second to the king in the whole, whole country and has the power to put them to death, they find out this is our little brother that we sold into slavery. And they thought he's going to get even with us now. And Joseph said, don't be afraid. It was not you who sent me to Egypt. It was God. How many believe that? And I looked at that and I says, wait just a minute. Was it God who influenced his brothers to treat him so bad? Was it God who had him sold as a slave? Was it God who worked through Potiphar's wife to tempt him to immorality? that got him thrown in jail, was that, I'm not going to argue about who was doing it. All I know is this, Satan's going to do what he can do, and if you put it in God's hands, God's going to bring a blessing out of what Satan does. Amen? And the next time Satan is messing with you and doing the things that Satan's going to do to you, you look at that as an opportunity and think, I don't know what's coming to this, but I do know this. If I put it in God's hands and I just let God handle it the way God's going to handle it, he's going to bring a blessing out of it. Amen? Now, I want you to look at the closing hymn. And we're going to look at the words, because I can preach a whole sermon out of this. And I have a bulletin today, so if you want to hold up your fingers and let me know what pages is, you can do so, because I've lost the bulletin. 500 and what? What? 509. I want you to look at this text, uh, this song. My son's a call porter. 
How many of the callpours sometimes have hard times? Any callpours here know the callpours have hard times? He was going through hard times, and someone had him sing this song. I'm not going to read all the verses, but we're going to sing all the verses. But I want you to particularly notice verse 3. Are you there? 509 verse 3. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee. Thy troubles to what? What's going to be blessed? The troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Verse 4. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. When God allows you to be treated badly, think God has a reason. Maybe he wants to cleanse something in my heart. Maybe he wants me to witness to the person who's causing me this trouble. But whatever goes wrong, put it in God's hands and say, God can bring good out of this if I just let him. Amen? Dear Father in heaven, the Bible says plainly that very near in the future we're going to pass through a time of trouble. And we know that the little troubles that you allow us to go through now are just preparing us to lean upon God so that when the big time of trouble comes, we can stand firm for Jesus. And Father, a, a statesman 60 years ago when his country was being attacked said, though England should last a thousand years, this trouble we're going through will be known as their finest hour. Father, I pray that you will help us to come close to you and then no matter what happens, stay close to you. So in the midst of the darkest night, we can shine for you. And it might well be, dear Father, that even now there are people who are causing us trouble in our lives. And if we treat them the way that Jesus treated his persecutors, maybe, just maybe, some of those people will be saved in your kingdom because of our patient endurance. This is my prayer for myself and each one of us today in Jesus' name. Amen.